Welcome to the first episode of Classics with Coffee. I'm sitting here with my daughter, Juliet, drinking out of my James Baldwin mug. Probably my favorite mug, and she has her... Jane Eyre. Yeah, so you have your Charlotte Bronte <laughs> mug. What does your say on it? It says, I am no bird and no net and snares me. You know, I, I'm actually, I'm reading Jane Eyre right now and kind of liking it. Shocked to say. And mine actually says, it's probably my favorite James Baldwin quote, it says... You think your pain and heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. And you find out that other people have experienced similar things. So, before we get going and kind of tell you about the podcast, let's, let's tell you about the coffee we're drinking. What are, you, what are we drinking today? We are drinking a coffee from Portraits, which is from Kenya, and it is a strawberry and butterscotch. So, Portrait Coffee is out of Atlanta, and this roast is out of Kenya, right? Or yes. This, this coffee. It's three out of five on a roast. I don't know what that means. Is that how, is that, does that mean that it's like a medium roast? Yes. Okay. It, it, it is a medium roast and very good and fruity to me because I don't like dark roast. I think I put too much cream and sugar in mine because I usually like don't put the cream and sugar. And so I feel like I don't taste anything. I just taste cream and sugar. And that's what's totally different. I, I'm kind of shocked that you actually like black coffee. I can deal. My, it's I can, good. It's really good. You're a teenager and you like black coffee. It's because I'm too lazy to put anything in it. I can I can believe that. <laughs> so this is actually our first episode, and this is a new podcast. So how did this podcast actually come about? I think you say it's my idea, but I think this was really your idea. It was his idea. I think so. Basically, what happened was about two years ago. I think you brought it up, like in just a conversation, and I was like, eh. No, I don't really want to do a podcast with you. That's not going to be fun. And then I mentioned it probably about like half a year ago. Was it half a year ago? It was on the way to school one time, I think. Oh, wow. Mentioned it a while ago. And then he kept pestering me about it. He was like, what book are we going to read? What book book are we going to read? Are we going to do The Great Gatsby? Are we going to do this or this or this? What are we going to do? And I was like, okay. And now I'm sitting here questioning how I ended up actually going through with this. So... (laughs) The podcast we actually kind of came up with, we decided that what we would do was we would do five books. And we would each choose two books that the other possibly had read or hadn't read. And then we would actually talk about them. So this is titled Classics and Coffee. All of these books aren't classics in the sense that they are things that you would necessarily encounter in the classroom, in high school or in college. But... They are literature and classics, and we can talk about why we think they're classics and important books. Yeah, I was about to say, does classics necessarily mean in the classroom? Exactly. So <laughs> that's not a that's not a good way to phrase it. Does it does it actually mean in the literary canon? I was going to use those words, but I don't know how many people know the literary canon discussion. Oh, we won't know. go into that right now. I don't know the literary canon discussion. Exactly. <laughs> so. Since we're doing five episodes, we also kind of came up with a mutual book that we chose together, which is, going to, which is going to be this first episode. So can you tell us what this first book actually is? So it takes place in the 1920s. That doesn't really give you an answer. Well, it takes place in New York, um, and it's by the name of Gatsby. Was he that great? We don't know, but they call it The Great Gatsby. By F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, I was going to say, so the title of the book is The Great Gatsby, not the author. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I didn't say it was the author. 
Juliet, there's one more thing we need to kind of say before we get going here. If you if you can't tell, we are related. And I think that that's another thing that Juliet kind of brought up that will hopefully make this in, interesting and entertaining for us and for you as a listener because Juliet is my daughter. So I get annoyed with him very easily. And I get annoyed with her because she doesn't listen. So Reminds me of me as a teenager. And we, of course, are... However many years apart, 27 years apart, which tells you, of course, how old I am if you know how old she is and vice versa and all that crap. So we have actually divergent views on literature, what we like, what we enjoy, yet we have similar views. And also in regards to generational discussions, um, discussions on sex and gender all these types of things, I think, are what going to make this podcast interesting. And kind of her views of encountering these works at her age and how my views have changed. Because I've read Gatsby three or four times probably at different stages of my life. So my views are different. And she is only still a teenager and she's already read it how many times? Three. Sheesh. Well, Why okay, have you read one, Gatsby okay. three times? First time I read it over the summer for fun. It was Okay. Notice she said for fun. I read a lot of things for fun. I read Oliver Twist for fun. That was a major <laughs> mistake, I must add. Charles Dickens, good writer, mm, but not for me. Um, I read it again for class, and then about a week later, I decided to put myself through hell and do a project while I also simultaneously at the time was gone on a four-day hiking trip. So I pretty much had to read the book all over again. So I've seen the 2013 movie twice because we had to do like a comparison between those two. And I've seen and I've read the book about three times. So you read the book three times in this past year? Yes. And Basically. one of them was like full-on annotation of quotes and pictures and ton of stuff. Yeah, you can tell us if you want to about that project you did later, which you... <laughs> I saw pieces of and wanted to see more because you actually used coffee grounds to make this journal and diary look aged. Which looked kind of cool, but you said it was a it was a hard thing to do. We can talk about that later if you want to. But my whatever. English teacher still has it. Hey, it's classics and coffee, though. It is, and that's kind of why I mentioned that. Yeah. But so I guess I guess here's the question: Why? And we came to this this book kind of together. Why did you actually choose this book as the first one you wanted to talk about? Well, mostly, like in all honesty, I was really busy, and so I didn't really have the time to read as much as I wanted to. So. Basically, what ended up happening was he kept asking me, he was like, are we going to do a book? What book are we going to do? And I was like, "There, like I would probably pick almost any other book under the sun to do as our first book. But the fact that I was reading it at the time, so it was the freshest in my memory, made it the best one for us. And considering the fact that we've both read it like numerous amounts of times, so it's kind of engraved into our heads more than we kind of want. But that's pretty much why I think it's our first book. And it's something that we, I don't know. It's just something that, like, I picked it, though, right? Like, we... We agreed to it together, but yes, I think that you actually picked it. Yeah. So, technically, it's my book choice, but it's not... Like, out of the other two book choices that I have, which we'll see later on, it's probably my least favorite of the book choices. Yeah, it's not really my favorite book either, uh, for various reasons, but just because a book is not your favorite does not mean that you cannot like it and find things in it. 
But I'm kind of glad we're starting off with this book because it's one that most people, if you're listening to this podcast, have read probably at some point. And probably if you've read it, you probably read it in high school. And if not in high school, probably in college, right? So this is a book that is very much ingrained in the kind of curriculum and kind of the, you know, English studies that we do. So it's it's a very popular book, not just in the classroom, but also culturally, too. I just saw something where Gatsby went out of copyright last year, and they're like, everybody's rushing to do something with it. And oh there's goodness. like this, this, yeah, there's this immersive kind of play that's going on in New York about oh it, and like gosh. all this type of stuff. So one thing I kind of want to point out, too, before we get going is I was reading that article about the immersive Great Gatsby. It's in, it's in the New York Times um, by Alexis Soloski. And she quotes Marie, uh, Maureen Corrigan, who is a professor and book critic and everything, too. And one of the things that Corrigan says, she wrote a book actually called So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. And in this article, Soloski uh, called Corrigan and Corrigan said this about the book, about people who read it and kind of don't. And just focus on one thing, the 1920s and the Roaring Twenties and the parties and all this stuff. This is what she said, and I kind of want to know what you think about this, Juliet. Corrigan says, they're just focusing on one side of this incredibly nuanced novel. Which is saying, it's beautiful to try, it's beautiful to reach for the American dream. But there, this is Soloski, but there is another side to the book Corrigan noted, which is, this is Corrigan, you're going to fall short. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disillusioned. So kind of my question is, why does this novel endure so much? And why does so many people just focus on the party aspects of it? Well, I don't know why people necessarily focus on the party aspects of it. But I think so many times, like, even in American society, like, we want or our picture of what wealth is, is not necessarily, like, as you know, like, these characters struggle a lot throughout the novel, and they have a bunch of problems that they're going through, and they're very shallow because of their wealth. And so they don't really acknowledge that. They more acknowledge of, oh, they have a ton of money, they can do whatever they want, they can go wherever they want, like, pretty much that. And so I think some people think money has more to do with freedom, but it actually could serve as a hindrance, too, if you come to think about it. Well, money can serve as a hindrance, and... That kind of leads me to another question. Do you like the narrative of this novel? Because that is the one thing that I tell people when I talk about this novel. I hate the narrative. I hate this kind of setup and kind of Jay Gatsby going and trying to get all the money he can to acquire Daisy. Okay. Like, are we talking about, like, Nick Carraway's narration of the novel? I'm just talking, talking about, about the whole, the whole, not the narration, okay. not Nick's narration, narration, but the plot. Okay, I was about to say, if we were to go into Nick's narration right now, I probably be talking for five minutes and not stop. But, um, I think... I just don't like it. I don't like the whole idea of people chasing after other people and trying to get so much money. And we know, as Daisy's character is, like, she's usually in it for the money. She's kind of that person who will, like, pretty much... She seems to be the kind of person who go after wealth. Like, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that why she married Tom, right? Basically. And because Gatsby's poor, or Gatsby's Yeah, poor. so Gatsby was poor, and got, Gatsby was, like, off at war and all these things. And so it was basically, like, I just, I don't like it, because I can't really, like, it's just, it's not 
good. It's, and it's also really sickening, too, when you think about it. Somebody's, like, waiting all these years, five years, saving up all this money for somebody to come back and notice them and throwing all these big parties and everything, basically blowing a bunch of money just for somebody to show up at their doorstep and hopefully recognize them again. And then I was looking back over it. One of the big parties he throws, he doesn't see Daisy there, so he gets drunk. Right? It's like, it's just there for everybody else to party and whatever, but he's doing it for one person. And that that reminds me, I was watching some videos yesterday about Gatsby and George R. R. Martin was in a PBS video. And one thing that when I last time I taught this novel, I taught it when I when we were in Norway on the Fulbright. This is like forty five years ago, four or five years ago, not forty five. <laughs> and the thing that stuck out to me when I taught at that time was the facades and the illusions, the I L L U S I O N S in this novel, and the illusions of everything that's not real. I mean, remember there's the allied guy who goes into the library. He's like, these books are real. They actually have pages. <laughs> There's, you know, Myrtle, when, when Tom hits her, there are these illusions of wealth. There's the the Gardens of Versailles, these tapestries. The magazine that they're reading is like a gossip magazine, and that's where the blood, they kind of wipe up the blood on her nose there, too. And all these types of things, there's these illusions of kind of what's real and what's not real. And Martin said that Daisy is an illusion, an illusion of what Gatsby wants. An illusion of the American dream, which is what the book's about, too. Yeah. So, what do you kind of think about this idea of... None of this is even real. I mean, even Nick himself and Daisy, I mean, they're cousins, but even Nick says that my family history isn't real. He says that, you know, they say we're Scottish and English lords, but actually my great-grandfather, my grandfather came over in 1851, ran a hardware store, was able to pay for somebody to go fight in the Civil War for him. They made them, They made their money. Right? Yeah. And now they're keeping Jay out of everything. So what do you mean necessarily like they're not real, like they're an illusion? Like how would, can you like further elaborate on that? Because I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of confused right now. <laughs> they've never, they've never been wealthy. Well, yeah. they're wealthy now. Yeah. But they earned, they got their money through different means. So you can't come over wealthy. They haven't been wealthy all the time. Because yeah. one of the big tensions is that Jay is nouveau riche. He's new money, right? Yeah. And that's why Tom and everybody kind of looks down on him. And that's what you see the difference between West and East Egg as well. Right. So they had to get their money somehow. Where did that money come from, right? And it gets kind of, I think, into this idea of what is actually real, what's not real. Um... And the other thing, too, that gets back into that with me is, remember Tom's racist rant? He's talking at the beginning about the white man's good. Reed, he doesn't say Reed Lothrop Stoddard, but that's who he's basing off on. Read all these read all these eugenics things, saying that the white man is about to die and all this stuff. And he said that the Nordic race is going to rise. And if you look at the novel, Tom can't be Nordic within that kind of context. He would be Scottish. Um, Daisy, I don't know what, I don't remember what she would be, but he kind of gives Daisy like this pass. He like looks at her and says, you're white. And she kind of like nods. Like he kind of like puts her into the group. So we know that she's not, which means Nick's not, right? The only people who could really be Nordic, according to, you know, Tom's kind of definition and discussion, would be um, Nick's Finnish maid, who's never named and just called the Finnish maid. And then... Right. Not well, even the finish, babe. The fin- and, 
and J. Yeah. Because Gats, I believe, is Germanic. So he would actually be within that kind of Aryan Nordic discussion. Nobody else in there would. And they're kicking him out. That's an illusion too, right? Yeah. About what is actually real. And then even to top all that off, the epigraph at the beginning is a is not even a real person. It's a character from another F. Scott Fitzgerald book. So the epigraph itself is an illusion because epigraphs you typically think of as quotes from, you know, famous authors or famous thinkers. And it's from Thomas Park Denton Villiers. Then wear the gold hat if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too. Till she cried, lover, gold-hatted, high-bouncing lover, I must have you, right? Yeah. Which sums up kind of the the narrative of Gatsby himself, but it's an illusion. It's not It's not somebody real. Yeah. At all. That's what I mean. <laughs> I think you lost me even further on that entire conversation. I lost you with the illusion. Yes, you've completely lost me with the illusion. Like, I understand what you're meaning. Like, they're not real and they're basically meant to, like... Oh, you mean that they're basically meant to, like... Oh, what's the word? It's that word that you use for stuff. Like They're fake. Well, yeah, they're <laughs> fake. That's what I mean. But, like, so you're basically saying... But what are you saying? Because, like, how are they fake? Like, what do you mean by that? Like That, no- <laughs> that nothing here is real. Everything they're even grasping for isn't real, which in turn means the American dream isn't real. So it's not attainable. So right. We could get back to that. If the mm-hmm. American dream isn't attainable. I mean, what even about that? So when you're saying it's not real, you're saying it's not attainable. You're not saying that it's not real. Is that what you mean? I'm saying kind of both. So okay. I, I, I'm saying that what, the, that what the characters are doing isn't real. They have money. Yeah. They have this stuff. Yeah. But their kind of ideas about money and why they have the money, how they got the money, isn't real. So right? it's, I mean, that, not, it's not realistic in an actual world sense of how they ended up with that money. It could be realistic in actual world sense how they got the money. But it's not, it's not but, something but it's, that's realistic for everybody. It's an illusion. It gets back to what you said earlier that money doesn't buy you happiness. Yeah. So the illusion of even having the money isn't going to buy you happiness. That's with Myrtle. Like I said, they're in the hotel room, and then Myrtle mentions Daisy, and Tom hits her. Yeah. And then she's bleeding. If you look at that hotel room, which she decorated, it has all these images of wealth. It has the Gardens of Versailles, like I said. It has this gossip magazine that she bleeds on. Oh. So even Tom himself, even though he has the money, it's still an illusion because he's, like I said, he claims to be Nordic, and he's not. Okay. So it really kind of gets to the question, even back to Nick, if you want to talk about the narrator, about what's actually real and what's not real, because is actually Gatsby, is he a bootlegger? What does he do, what does he do with Meyer Wolfsheim, right? Yeah. Do we know if he does anything with them, or is, that, or is he just there? There's speculation. There's all this speculation about what Gatsby does, even in the house. Yeah. There's speculation about his parents, Dan Coat, all of this stuff. It's all rumor and speculation. Even, like, the rumor that he killed a man once. Right. I mean, we don't know if he did or not. And then considering the fact, too, that it's through Nick's narration of what Gatsby said, a lot of stuff can get lost in narration. Like, I cannot come to you and quote something that you said word for word. I would probably mess... Like, there was a story that we were talking about, the dog story, about this guy who ended up, like, in New York and, like, stealing a dog. It's not a true story. 
But, like, the fact that when I tried to retell that story, I missed out, like, 50 million different things that were very key. And so, basically, the fact that when you tell something from somebody else, that narration is not going to be the same. So stuff can get lost in translation. Things can be, like, slipped up a little bit, even if it's, like, something very simple. But that could end up being, like, very... I mean, it's like the telephone game. Yeah. You're moving it down the line and things are getting added or lost for change, right? Mm -hmm. It's the way we tell stories. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Nick a little bit because that's one of the things that I like about this novel. And I like Fitzgerald's writing. I mean, he's very poetic, very stylistic, very, I think, an excellent writer. So what do you... You said you can talk about Nick for like five minutes. What about (laughs) Nick? So I do not like Nick as a character. Even though he may be deemed one of the more favorable ones, I think he's just as bad as everyone else. And I think the reason for that is because, at first, in the beginning of the novel, one of the most popular things that we talk about is how he is somebody who doesn't judge other people. And it's something that his father told him not to do. But in reality, throughout the book, you can see he's talking about, like, when he talks about Tam, Tom, Tam, Tom in his, like, arrogant eyes, and when he's talking about, like, Jordan and how she's always bored and, like, just done with everything. And you sort of see his judgment of the characters throughout a lot of the adjectives and adverbs that he uses. And so it's not necessarily that he's... He's judging people. He's judging them a lot. And the fact that he says that he's not like that, it kind of makes me really mad. But at the same time, too... So all of this that we see... And I think one of the interesting things, too, is one of the interest Like, what's very interesting is... We see these characters through Nick's lens. So we don't see it through a lens of anybody else. So we don't see what these characters are like without the narration of Nick Carraway. And if you've ever seen... I'm going to go to the movie a little bit because this is what I worked on for my project. Um, the Baz Luhrmann movie. Yeah, the Baz Luhrmann movie, that one. Um, so basically what happens is he starts out in a sanitarium. And he's writing about his issues and everything... And basically ends up at the end writing The Great Gatsby. And one of the things that's different from that is he's not... Of course he's not narrating the whole way through. But you see the story, but you get less of his narration in the story. But what happens is in the beginning of the movie, they sort of set up pretty much the crap that they've put him through. And pretty much where he ended up going, suffering through like depression, alcoholism... Like, insomnia, a bunch of all these it's, things. It's been a while since I've watched that version of the movie. I think that may be the only version I've actually seen. I never saw the Robert Redford version. But in that version of the movie, is Nick in every scene? I... Or in most of them? So are we he's actually a, he's following him? in most him? of the scenes. Like, that's when you asked me about the whole, like, was he at, da- like, was he at Gatsby's house with them. In the movie, he was. He was just like in a little corner. Well, he is. So, so, so what we're talking about is the scene where Nick sets up Gatsby and Daisy to actually meet in his house. Yeah. And I kind of thought that the narration switched and we got Gatsby's kind of point of view. But I look back over that tonight and we don't. Nick goes outside and he kind of mills around a little bit while Daisy and Gatsby are in the house. Then he comes back in and sees him on both sides of the couch. Okay. And he sees them kind of separate. So how do you say we see him in the film? So basically in the film, like sort of I was saying before, we don't really get Nick's judgment as much because he's like he's narrating, but he's not narrating necessarily as much. Like it's more of a loose narration. 
because it's kind of difficult to do that through a film and have like a 100% narration and see what a character's like thinking all the time compared to that of a novel. And so one of the things was, however, when he's put into the sanitarium, we see what these characters do to him and how him pretty much getting involved into these people's lives ends up changing his life and making it quite miserable. And so we sort of, from that, get the sense of these are really, really bad people. They're not good people. And I'm not saying like without the narr- like without Nick's narration, they'd be like wonderful or fantastic people or they wouldn't be bad people. But I'm just saying the way that that kind of shapes how we view the characters. Yeah, depending on how you actually present it depends on how you view them. Yeah. So like if you're actually viewing it with the other characters doing different things in different scenes, then you're viewing it from their point of view. It's kind of more of a third person. Not omniscient, but it's kind of more of a third person narration than a first person. And in film, I think sometimes you kind of have to do that. We could follow Nick the whole way through, right? But that would be a little more difficult. So what do you kind of, you know... I guess we've talked about what we kind of dislike. (laughs) Um, I just want to say that I... The reason I like this novel for Nick's narration is because of Ernest Gaines, as you know. And probably my favorite American novel, at least my favorite 20th century American novel is... It's of Love and Dust, isn't it? Right. Ernest Gaines is of Love and Dust from 1967, which takes place in South Louisiana. You wouldn't think on the surface has anything really to do with The Great Gatsby and anything like that. It takes place with a, a black man being bonded out of jail. It has a first-person narrator. And it's two interracial kind of, you know, love affairs that happen there and then a murder at the end. So in some ways, it's kind of like Gatsby. Not with interracial, but just with the love affairs and things like that and then the murder at the end. But what Gaines has said is that the narrator of that novel... And I'm going to forget his name, Jim. He goes by a couple of different names, but Jim is based off of Nick Carraway. So it's a first-person point of view told from Jim's perspective, and it's really about Marcus, who's yeah. the who's the guy who gets who's the black guy who gets monitored out of jail and works on the plantation. So you see kind of Gaines using the stylistic element of Nick Carraway, and I asked Ernest Gaines about you know the novel before, and he was like, "Yeah, I don't like that novel either. The plot, you know." Like, but, he, but he's like, Gatsby? right. He's like, I like it stylistically, and this is why I like it stylistically. And what I thought about with that scene that we were talking about a second ago, where Daisy and Gatsby are in, are in Nick's house, is the thing with Gaines that is really amazing as a writer is he can have a first person narration. So he tells he tells it from Jim's perspective, and then he slips seamlessly into these other points of view of stories that other characters told him. So it's still Jim's perspective, but it feels like it's becoming kind of a multi-vocal narrative with other people telling the story. This happens a few times near the end when everything's kind of coming to a head. But didn't they they also do that in The Great Gatsby with, like, Jordan and with uh, Gatsby himself? I don't think they did. Because what you get with... With Gatsby's narration, is you get it through Nick. I was, I kind of glanced back over that too. It was like okay. back in 1970. This is like he told me this directly, and like I said, that's what you get with Jim. But it's different stylistically. You think you're moving into somebody else's point of view when you're really not. Well. It's it's just it's seamless, and I'm not. I don't focus much on style when I look at things because I'm not. I mean, I 
I write. I'm not a creative writer with fiction or anything, but it's just it's a masterful kind of thing that he does, and that's one of the reasons I really like that novel is because of those things that he does and kind of the settings and things like that. So we talked about dislikes. Are we about to talk about likes? Yeah, what's your do you have a favorite part of the novel? Like a favorite like scene? Or like favorite scene. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Are we talking about like I have some favorite parts of the novel. Parts. Okay. Or a favorite quote? What's that? What's there's a quote? I got it from a book. It's about the one of like we should show, we should show a man like our friendship. It's it's something that it's at the funeral, and I was actually thinking yeah, about yeah. that too. So it's the guy who comes in like who, before he dies. Yeah, he well he's already dead. This no, is, no, I'm saying that's this like is, part of the quote. So the guy comes in. I don't think this is Gatsby's dad, because dad Gatsby's dad actually comes in too. But but the guy says he tells Nick this because nobody comes to Gatsby's funeral, right? This is what he tells Nick. Let us learn to show our friendship for a man when he is alive and not after he is dead. Yes. I bought that. There was a little bookmark thing that I got for $1 at Books A Million that said that. But why do you like that quote? I like it because I feel like so many times, like, people choose to, like, honor people when they're pretty much dead and show, like, respect. And then that's when they have, like, their griefs and regret and everything. And especially, like... But, like, the thing is, at the same time, too, like, we should really show that respect to people when they're living. We shouldn't just sort of... And we should have that sort of, like... Like, if they've done something wrong, we should forgive them while they're living. And if we have guilt towards them, we should try to solve that while they're living, not when they're gone and they're pretty much getting ready to turn into dust. So if we go back to the discussion of illusion, Gatsby dies without friends. Except for Nick. He says, basically, I'm his only friend, right? Yeah. And Gatsby knows he has no friends. He has no qualms about that because he has the singular purpose of getting Daisy. But his whole kind of life, not just the house, but his whole life and his existence is an illusion in and of itself. And it's an illusion even to the people who look at him because they think he has all this and he's all happy when he's not. Right? I'd say my favorite part of the book is kind of along the, that same section where um, Gatsby's father gives Nick the Hopalong Cassidy book and gives him actually it's the next page the gives, time schedule gives him the time schedule mm-hmm. because what that is why do you say aw no because I just remembered that yeah is that kind of a sentimental thing mm-hmm. like the way you said that I like that <laughs> but what I like about that is it sums up even more than the green light to me which is this kind of symbol of aspiration and money that's always out of reach. Yeah. That time schedule sums up this the American dream in a nutshell and kind of this trajectory of the American dream up to that point and even now. It's this self help it's this self help thing. And it's directly connected to me with Benjamin Franklin and his autobiography. Study electricity, etc. Yeah, and Benjamin <laughs> Benjamin Franklin's autobiography was written for his son. He has in there, of course, things to make me a better person. He has the schedule, things I should do, things I shouldn't do. He has this kind of chart and table. And while the term American Dream wasn't coined until later, it's really kind of, that's one of the starts of it. It's just kind of like up from your bootstraps, do it on your own type of thing. And the thing that gets me, I'm thinking about this with Gatsby too, the thing that gets me with Franklin 
is he says that I did all this stuff on my own. I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. I made this money. I did all this stuff. Yet he has people to help him. And he doesn't name the people. He just Ooh. says, I had this person help me. And it's kind of like throws him to the side. Oh. And says, well, this person helped me do this. And throws him to the side. Did you say this was Benjamin Franklin? Yeah, this is Franklin's autobiography. And if, if you read it and kind of notice that, you're like, oh, people help him. Yet it's this also this individualistic thing. And Dan Cody helps Gatsby. Other people help Gatsby. He acknowledges them. I was about to say, you could really go quickly into politics with this. But it's, but it's still almost, you know, I did it on my own when Franklin didn't do it on his own. Yeah. It's this kind of myth-making of, I made it by myself. And I like that end with that, too. And then, of course, go to the end of that. I mean, the other thing we have to kind of mention is that last line. It is a famous, actually, last two paragraphs. Read those out real quick. Which one? These two? Yeah, read those last two paragraphs. From And As I Sat There? Yeah. Okay. And as I sat there, brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked on the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will, we will run faster, stretch out our arms further, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. That last line, you know, so we, so we beat on basically. Beat on boats against the right, current, bore back ceaselessly into the past. We're going backwards. We're not going forward, right? We're always looking backwards and not looking at this moment. And that's what that novel's about too, right? Is that we look to the past and not actually what's here in front of us. Gatsby's like so focused on the past. I mean, especially with that entire conversation he has with Nick of, you can't repeat the past. And he's like, of course you can. Of course you can. Because you can, old chap. <laughs> but you can't. Old sport. Not... Old sport, sorry. Old chap. <laughs> the British version of right. The Great Gatsby. The British dream, not the American dream. Of course you can, old sport. Of course you can. I mean, that kind of whole idea of nostalgia and looking back to the past. There's a good thing of looking to the past and what's been there and learning from it, but dwelling there is not. You were about to say you know, what I was what's good. Say. So, I think that's a really important thing to kind of take away from this too. And let me give you two quotes before we kind of wrap up here. I was reading these articles again, and there's actually two quotes from Fitzgerald that I think are really interesting. And this is from 2020, so right before actually the, the novel went out of copyright. And this is another New York Times article. And two things that Fitzgerald said, and we can talk about whether this one's right or not. So this novel didn't sell well in his lifetime. Yep. When it was actually reprinted, I found this out yesterday, when it was reprinted during World War II for the military servicemen, then it sold well. <laughs> yeah. Which, that kind of... It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if I'm thinking about this historically, I didn't think about it initially, but if I'm thinking about it, we're coming off of World War II, the GI Bill, this economic boom, it kind of connects with that. That's mm -hmm. why this 1920s kind of nostalgia comes in, too, with this wealth yeah. and everything. Because you have to realize, especially during that time, like right up 1920s, you had Great Depression rolled straight into the World War II. And so kind of everybody's getting back wanting to return to that sort of like normal life beforehand. And so a lot of that is 
I mean, that makes complete sense as to why that novel ended up becoming such a huge success after the war. So, so this is what Fitzgerald said. This is a quote from him. Okay. <laughs> I think my novel is about the best American novel ever written. That's that's a little too narcissistic right there. And, and okay. writing, writing to critic Edmund Wilson, he's also said this. Of all the reviews, even the most enthusiastic, not one had the slightest idea what the book was about. Oh. So, let me read you one more and then, and then I'll ask you about Do we those. have a look at what those reviews were? I'd have to look them up. I'm sure I'm sure we can find them like an annoying critic and everything like that. I was about to say, that'd be really This is something else he said, too. I have never been able to forgive the rich for being rich, and it has colored my entire life and works. If there's also this kind of other side where he looks to the wealthy, like Zelda, Fitzgerald for one, wanting to always be a medieval knight and king and all this kind of other stuff. But I think those three quotes sum up a lot. So one about, this is perhaps the best American novel ever written. He said that. <laughs> but it has that reputation. Yeah. Moby Dick. Never, Huckleberry Finn. Never read Moby Dick. Great Gatsby. If I'm thinking those are three of the biggest novels, everything like Scarlet Letter. Notice they're all white men. That's fair. But what do you what do you think of that? Like, do I think it's the greatest? Well, not not do you think it's the greatest. <laughs> Why do we still put it up there with these other novels? I know you haven't read them. You've read Huck Finn. Okay, so I think for the people who don't necessarily understand the meaning of the novel, I think it is definitely the setting and the narration mostly, and pretty much the drama of a bunch of these people and the affairs and the parties and everything like that. Like, it was really funny because... It's a gossip teacher, magazine. I know. It's basically it's basically a gossip it's magazine. It's In Touch. As summed up in an It's In Touch or TMZ novel. or Twitter. <laughs> the Great Gatsby was Twitter before Twitter. Anyways. But, like, I think it was really funny because my teacher came up, like, when she was talking about, like, we're reading The Great Gatsby, she was like, you guys are gonna, like, you guys are gonna like it. Like, of course we had, like, our very, like philosophical conversations about the book but at the same time in the beginning she was like there's parties there's affairs there's like and this is your AP like, English this, class like the prohibition and everything yeah and so there's all these things and so I think for a lot of people in that sense especially that a lot of I think a lot of the people who end up reading this novel now are high schoolers mostly because it is pretty much embedded into American society's high school curriculum at this point right like, if you go through, like, I have met very few people who have not been through the American education system and have not read The Great Gatsby. Or at least been introduced minus, to it whether they read it or yeah. not. Minus, minus mom, apparently. But, yeah, we, yeah we, we asked your mom, you know, earlier today if she read it. She's never read it, which is kind of a shocker to me. But she's seen she's, the movie. Right, she watched the Baz Luhrmann film, but yeah. she hasn't read the book. I don't think she'd like the book, though. I don't think I don't she'd think like it either. It's not, it's not her style. It's not her. It's not up her alley. But, um, so I think... One of the things for that is it's just, one, it's become so, like, embedded into our society, especially as teenagers, sometimes there are some themes and some very important things in books that we often overlook. Like, I can tell you that there are things that, dad, like, my dad will notice in books that I will not notice. And there might be things that I notice that he doesn't notice and sort of that whole generational gap thing. And so I think one of the things is that sometimes, depending on... First off, depending on whether or not you want to read it, depending on why you're reading it, first of all. Because I had a friend who read it, and she she liked it, and she thought it was like an okay book, but at the same time, like, she wasn't 
as focused on the themes of the novel, she was more focused on the setting and the characters kind of thing. And I think that's something that, I think the setting and the characters are the thing that pretty much lays as, as of all good novels, pretty much lays as like sort of a blanket over the actual thing. I like the fact you said that people get different things out of different works. And it's one thing that I tell students all the time, that when you're reading a book, it's a conversation. And what I mean by that is the author is conversing with you in some way, shape, or form. And you are conversing, even though you're sitting there quietly reading it, with the author. And those ideas are coming back and forth. So when you read it, the conversation you're going to have and the things you bring to it are different than the things that I'm going to bring to it. And especially, right, and especially if you've read it three or four times at different stages of your life, you've all read these within the same year of your life. So, I mean, it not varying much there. doesn't have much. But I will say, what you said about how the author and different people view things differently, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is from the portrait of... Um, Not the portrait, the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I was about to say the portrait of an artist as a young man, but that's not the right one. But in the introduction, because I haven't read the book, but I read the introduction one day because I was bored for some reason. And he sort of talks about how, I'm pretty sure he sort of talks about how when somebody looks at a painting, they're not looking at what the author or the artist is trying to say. They're looking at sort of a reflection of themselves. Mm. And their ideas and their thoughts being reflected off of that painting and that's what they're taking from the paint from that painting and that work and that's sort of the same thing as novels you're not always getting what the author might want to convey but you're sort of getting a reflection of yourself as well with that so we could we could bring in roland bart's the death of the author because once the author kind of publishes it it's gone it goes to you to actually interpret and to read it right and like i said before what you bring to this conversation is everything that you know so, like, we were watching the episode of Community yesterday. There's so much in that show that you don't know because you don't get the jokes. Because the jokes are, are references that you don't get. Right? And unless you have that knowledge, you can't enjoy it. It's kind of the same with something like a novel. Unless you have some of the knowledge of what that culture, community, society, words may be like, then you may not get everything, right? Yeah. And that's not the only thing. But, I mean, that's kind of the thing to think about is that we bring to these texts and whatever we do, music, whatever, all of our knowledge, you know, it goes with it. And I think that's kind of a good thing to to think about as you think about reading, think about music, think about whatever. Would you recommend this book to anybody? Or, sorry, why would you recommend this book to anybody? Okay. Why would you recommend somebody read it? (laughs) I would recommend, if you want to read something that makes you think about American society and sort of pretty much, as you said, the lies of the American dream and also how wealth doesn't bring happiness, as you said before. And if you're looking for it, if you are lo- if you want a book to look at more from like a philosophical lens, I would say definitely look at it. But if you're just looking for a book with like a set, like a really nice setting or something like that, I mean, it's good, but you're not going to get out of it what you should. And so... I would probably look in a different area for that because as he, as sort of he said before, none of the critics or anything, whether good or bad, what they had to say about it, really understood the purpose of the novel. And do we really, do we understand the purpose of it? <laughs> I have no probably idea. Probably not. Probably not. There's probably millions of other layers that you could unpack from this novel. You know, I would recommend it because it's, it's a quick read. 
It's not a it's not a difficult read. It is entertaining. There are moments that are entertaining and fun. But thinking about it within a broader context, it is the quintessential or a quintessential American novel. We've made it that for various reasons. So for that, I think you should read it. But I also think you should read it because of the fact, like I said, Ernest Gaines pulls from it. Uh, Stephanie Watts Powell pulls from it with an African American, I forgot the name of it, but it's an African American basically. Great Gatsby set in either South or North Carolina. I don't remember exactly. That's a recent book, right? And how much stuff actually pulls from this novel. So if you don't know the novel, then you may not know these kind of other things and these kind of parodies or whatever. There's a whole Simpsons episode that's it's actually like an hour-long Simpsons episode based off The Great Gatsby. You Wait, know? are you actually like dead serious? Yeah. It's kind of like a hip-hop Great Gatsby. I forgot. Oh, it's, no. Yeah. It, came, no, it was no, a few no, years no. ago. I, I don't like the idea of that. But any, but anyways, <laughs> I think even as an artist, Fitzgerald's writing and everything, that's for his craft. You know, for some of those quotes, that in that end quote is one of the most famous quotes in literature, you know? And even that opening where Nick's father tells him, you know, don't criticize people, right? There are famous things in here that we just kind of take for granted in our, you know, cultural zeitgeist or, you so, know, mind. So do you think that this deserves to be called a classic? Or I mean, I think it deserves what exactly is a classic. We've never defined what actually a classic is. Classic. Now, a classic, does that mean, when we say classic, does it mean good? No. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that. Oliver Twist was not good. I would say I've never read Dickens. I have a PhD <laughs> in English, and I have never read Dickens. You're so, not missing much. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really thinking I want to miss much. Um, <laughs> but I would say a classic is really a book that has become so much a part of the cultural kind of psyche that you can't, that you encounter it in some way, shape, or form somewhere, and you may not even know you encounter it. All the books we're going to do this this season aren't necessarily classics in that sense. And we can switch our definition of classic a little bit, but within this context, that's what I think of as classic. Is that it just isn't so much ingrained within us. And I think it's something that stands the test of time, too. You know, like this, I mean, this was written, like, if you look at it, like, pretty much a century ago. Right. That's old. I mean, Shakespeare wasn't... You know, didn't, didn't really get popular to where Shakespeare is. I mean, it's yeah. popular, but it's like the 1800s, I think. You know, Moby Dick didn't sell well. You know, so what happens? It is kind of that test of time thing and this universal kind of things you can get out of it. But it's also what you bring to it, like I said. Yeah. So we're going to end each episode with kind of a... I think all these questions have been fun. But we're going to think a little bit outside the box and think about what if we actually turn these books into movies? And Great Gatsby's been turned into a few movies. Countless movies. Yeah, and we're, we're going to end talking about and what songs, you know, we would want on a soundtrack if we did a film version of it and why we would want that song on the soundtrack. And earlier today, before we started recording, Juliet called me when I was at the office and she was like, what song did you choose? I told her I was going to choose a Radiohead song. And she was like, what Radiohead song did you choose? And I told her what it was. It's like, okay, good, and then choose that one. So we both chose Radiohead songs, and, which okay, okay, which okay. which I think I think is fitting. Okay. Because Baz Luhrmann directed Romeo and Juliet yes. in 1996, and yeah. there were two Radiohead songs there, supposed to be Exit Music from a Film so and Talk Show Host. Basically what you're but saying. But there's no Radiohead song on the Great Gatsby so soundtrack. So basically, 
what dad would say is that he would actually enjoy the Baz Luhrmann movie more if there were two Radiohead songs included in it. I like the hip-hop music in it. I forgot <laughs> who I was on. I think Jay-Z and others were on the, were on the soundtrack. Well, also, I like that. I, it fits. Yeah. Also, at the same time, too, before you even, like, brought up that you were thinking of Radiohead, I was kind of thinking of it as well, because I was like, well, it seems... Like, I didn't put it together. Like, I knew the guy who did The Great Gatsby, like, in the back of my head, also did Romeo and Juliet. So it kind of, like, it came together without me realizing that it came together. So my thought, my original thought was Radiohead as well. But he said it, and I was like, well, I'm not going to do it. And then well, I, started, I was... I started thinking earlier today, too, about songs about the American dream, like Lecrae's um, Welcome to America and things like that. Oh, yeah. But, at, like, also at the same time, too, I was, like, scrolling and scrolling through stuff, and I was like, I can't really find anything that I necessarily would, like, want to see. I think this is going to be for me with a couple of books we're going to read this season. <laughs> I'm already thinking about it. So what was your song? So mine... I was about to say mine was... I was about to say the title of another book that we were about to read, because you said of books of this other season. But I was, I was about to spoil the book, but I'm not going to spoil the book. I'll save that for later. Um, but mine was Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead. And I think the reason for that is because it's pretty much about this artificial world. Yeah. And pretty much, I think... Yeah. I need to look back over the lyrics, but it's pretty much about this couple. And pre- Oh, you do you have the lyrics? No, this is the lyrics to my song. Oh, I, can't I should have printed out the lyrics to my song. <laughs> no, I told myself I was going to do it. I didn't do it. I'm so smart, you guys. Um, but... Pretty much, it's pretty much talking about this couple, and they're pretty much artificial love for each other. And so it kind of reminded me of Tom and Daisy's relationship a lot, but at the same time, how they're pretty much growing up in this artificial world. And when you look at that from the sense of The Great Gatsby, you pretty much have this artificial happiness that comes from wealth. And how, as you said, people who don't have that wealth might deem it as actual and like pure happiness, and how they're having the time of their lives, and they're love and they're going to all these crazy places and they're just having a bunch of parties and doing whatever the heck they want but in reality it's full of shallowness and just emptiness and loneliness in the end and i kind of went to the end not the artificial thing but i went to probably one of my favorite radiohead songs and a song i won't play at my funeral however my wife said that she will not play it at my funeral because i won't be there (laughs) <laughs> so I don't know what she's going to play at my funeral, but she said she's not going to play this song. And I'm oh, kind of oh mad my. about it. What? No, it reminded me of um, what my, uh, what uh, Grandma Walker wanted at her funeral. Great-grandma. Let's so, have a going away party. <laughs> so so for my wife's grandmother, she wanted let's have a going away party played at her funeral. I think they played it, didn't they? No, but that's the one thing she requested in her, like... I think one of like uh, Mama's sisters like refused. She was like, no, "I will, I bad. will come back in an attic and maim people if my wife does not play that at the funeral." <laughs> no, not that song. The song I want. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> she could play that one too if she wants. It'd be nice, kind of like gospel, country, bluegrass, Very and country. then and then we'll have some Radiohead. So the song that I chose was Radiohead's "Videotape," which is the last song on In Rainbows, which is an amazing album. But it's basically, you know, this haunting song. And Tom York kind of plays the piano, kind of this, I don't remember the time signature. And it's this song about somebody dying and then being at the pearly gates. That's actually the first line. When I'm at the pearly gates, this will be on my videotape. And looking back on life, right? And there's a few things in here and I was re-listening to it. It's been a little while since I listened to it and I was like, oh, 
The first verse is, when I'm at the pearly gates, this will be on my videotape. Mephistopheles is just beneath and he's reaching up to grab me. And of course, Mephistopheles is the demon that Faustus sells his soul to. And Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus to be this all-powerful person. And then, of course, when he dies, he, you know, goes to hell. So it's kind of the selling your soul to a certain extent, right? And that's kind of what Gatsby does is he sells his soul. You want this at your funeral? Yes. Wait, what? <laughs> and then it, ke- it keeps going. And then at the, then at the final kind of, the, the, the final verse. Oh, wait, please. Wait, we can talk about the funeral in a second. <laughs> wait a minute. Say that you sold your soul at your funeral. This is the interpretation I'm using right now. What's the interpretation for your funeral? <laughs> that I'm dead. And that you <laughs> sold your soul? <laughs> sure. Why can't you just play the funeral by Band of Horses? Because that's about alcoholism. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Which, which that's a nice song too. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> the, the last verse... The last verse reminds me of Gatsby. And there was a thing on Twitter going around the other day that said, "What's show a, show a, show a film shot with a pool. What's a film shot with a pool, you remember? And the first one that automatically came to mind was Baz Luhrmann's get, was Leonardo DiCaprio in the pool. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And I, I forget Myrtle's husband's name, but of course he shoots her because um, he Sorry, thinks that... George Wilson. Yeah, so George shoots Gatsby because he thinks that Gatsby ran Myrtle over when it was really Daisy, all that type of stuff, right? So, these last two things, these last kind of verse kind of sums this up to me. This is my way of saying goodbye, because I can't do it face to face, which kind of sounds, you know, I'm gone, of course, and I can't tell you goodbye face to face. I'm talking to you before, no matter what happens now, you shouldn't be afraid, and he wants Daisy to be happy, because I know today has been the most perfect day, and at that end, he goes out, especially in the film version, but he goes out to swim. That's why he's in the pool. So he's trying to make it kind of this calm, perfect day. And then the, in the Baz Luhrmann film, it's fall. And, of course, all of the leaves are falling into the pool, too. But today has been the most perfect day I've ever seen. That's kind of, you know, sums up a lot of this. And we could have done songs about the American dream. I was also thinking about Radiohead's No Surprises from OK. I Computer. was thinking about that, too. Yeah. Why did you think of that one? I don't know. Like, I tried to. Well, I considered it. But I, then I looked at the lyrics and I was like, well, maybe, maybe not. And I, I didn't think it was fit as much as I wanted it to. So I kind of didn't do it. But I did consider that as something at one point. So we just considered Radiohead songs. That's all we did. Pretty much, yeah. I tried to consider other stuff, but it kind of fit. Okay, every every book we choose this season would not be Radiohead songs. But Radiohead is probably my favorite or one of my favorite bands. Oh, for the that's next why. one? that's That one's going to be hard to pick. For the next book, yeah, I could I could get like some Mozart. Well, well, we'll use that. We'll use that as a teaser. So make sure to join us for the next episode where we travel to the moors of England and follow some characters around as they traipse through different houses. I don't think that's the right one. Still, still Moors. They talk about Moors. Can I say what book I? It sounds like you're talking about. Sounds like Weathering Heights. I it know. sounds like Weathering Heights, but that's not it. That's close. No, shut up. All right. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of Classics and Coffee. 
Make sure to check us out wherever you find your podcast, and we'll see you back here for and episode stay two. stay tuned so they can figure out why Dad wants this song to be because it still makes no sense to me. Bye. <laughs>